I'm Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you're listening to the Hashtag STRask podcast from Stand to Reason. Yes, ma'am. All right, Greg. Here's a here's a question from Trent. How do I do apologetics evangelistically? Recently, I've convinced a few coworkers Christianity is factually true using the cosmological and minimal facts arguments, etc. But they're apathetic, they're apathetic about actually becoming Christians. Any thoughts? Well, um, apathy is one of the hardest things to deal with. It is unusual if they are convinced that God exists and that Jesus rose from the dead that they don't consider any action items associated with that conviction, okay? So this is where the maybe it's appropriate to bring in the bad news. Jesus said lots of things that are not good news. The gospel is good news, but the good news is only good news if there's bad news. And uh, you can read the first part of uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, you get past the Beatitudes, and then you get a very uh, incisive characterization of what the law requires, which is perfection. The whole section ends by Jesus saying, you are to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. He starts by saying, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So, you got to be holier than the Pope in modern-day terminology, maybe, in order to get to heaven. Well, that's not good news. So this is the person who is God in the flesh who rose from the dead according to their conviction now based on the apologetics. And this person said, this is the requirement. Okay, now what? How are you doing with that? Um, and then Jesus talks uh, in John 3, um, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. And later on in the chapter, he who believes in me is not judge, but he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. So if God exists, and he is he, he is manifest in the, incarnate in the Son of God, in virtue of the resurrection, declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection, Romans 1, 3 or so, of all of this follows, then he is the one who will stand in judge of these people who acknowledge God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? Okay, that's the bad news. If these things are true, friends, that you just acknowledge, this is not good for you. This is bad, because Jesus is going to return, and you will have—and here's the way I characterize it. And I've been doing this for the last couple of realities. At the end, I'll be doing it in two weeks. Oh, I'm not supposed to time date this. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I— Actually, you you will be in a, in a few weeks. Okay, It'll be in Georgia. whenever this goes out, all right. But what I say is, I, I the way I characterize it, one day you're going to stand before Jesus— and he is going to demand an accounting of your life. And those books that are open there in Revelation 20, those books have every single thing that you ever did wrong. He's making a list, and he's checking it twice. He is not missing anything. You think you got away with anything, you're not going to get away with a thing. This is bad news. And here's the calculus. 
Either Jesus pays for those crimes, or you do. That one who is God, who became a human, and died and rose again from the dead, will stand there with the holes in his wrists and, the, and feet and the, the, the gash in his side, and he will stand there and bring judgment upon you. Now, the way I characterize this is personal. I don't say he's going to judge all people. I say, Fred, he's going to judge you. You are going to stand there, and he is going to examine your whole life. And there is no way that you're going to escape when you are judged according to your deeds. Punishment is deserved. Either Jesus takes it, or you take it. That's that's what you're facing. I think this situation, I, I do think it's somewhat unusual, but I think this situation is, it really illustrates the biggest difference between Christians and non-Christians. The biggest difference is not that I think it's true and they think it's not true. The biggest difference is I love God and they do not love God. I mean, just look at the demons. The demons believe God is true. But they don't want to be Christians either. Being true is not enough. There's a spiritual problem that's happening here. And this is this is where you have to pray because in, it, the Bible says, you know, Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come and he will reveal righteousness and the coming judgment and convict of sin. Mm-hmm. And he'll do all those things in our hearts so that we'll actually hear not just hear our own condemnation, because I do think people who aren't Christians can hear that. I, I think about Festus, or yeah, I can right. never remember which one it is, but yeah. Felix or Festus, who was listening to Paul. Paul was talking about the judgment to come, and he gets scared, and he says, oh, well, let's, we'll talk about this later. Right, right. <laughs> and and there's no later. There's no later. So there's a problem with, they may be feeling that condemnation, but you have to press in on that, as Greg was saying, because they have to know their their need for forgiveness but they also have you have to make sure they understand the gospel and, and here's where i've noticed something really interesting and that is i i can talk to an atheist and he will say you know christianity is just about fear and and i'll say no we we actually don't have any fear because we have been forgiven <laughs> we've been saved that actually removed all fear that god's love cast out fear and they literally cannot hear what I'm saying mm-hmm. because their image of God is someone, they feel that condemnation. So there is a fear of God that is mixed up with that condemnation. And they assume that's how we're living as Christians. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they that's can't the even hear. carrots and sticks. Yes. They think that's how we're living. Right. And it doesn't matter how many times I explain the gospel, they, they, can't, they can't see it from our perspective. So you have to do both. You have to... Uh, you have to press in on the idea that they're under condemnation, and you also have to tell them the gospel. Yeah, and both of those things are necessary. Mm-hmm. And there also could be they they might be under, misunderstanding the nature of the claim you're making. I, I it's it's just hard to know exactly without talking to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, want to make an observation? You commented a few moments ago about the difference between them and and us is we love God 
and they don't. And I know Amy, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand. Amy's not speaking of this in a meritorious sense. So because we love God, we're going to get saved, and they don't love God, so they're not going to get saved. It's the salvation that we experience that is creates and builds the love of God in our heart. And it's that what that's what makes the difference. It isn't like, okay, now we're saved. Phew, we just got out from underneath the stick. And so, no, it, 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 that's not relevant. Um, I mean, the, the punishment that, that we no longer endure or have to face is relevant. But the point here is that being united with God through the new birth who, um, is what creates the love in our heart that makes us want to do what God wants. We are no longer in the fear of the stick. Um, some some Christian religions do level the stick quite a bit to get conformance. Uh, con, is that the right word? Conformity. Perf, performance or performance. conforming. So conformance, that kind of covers both words, all right? <laughs> it's, it's word economy here, parsimony. They wield the stick, but illicitly, because uh, Hebrews makes it clear that this is not a factor anymore, um, that now we are in Christ and we are safe in Christ. And uh, I want I wanted to read something in the Acts chapter 10, just in this light. Here you have Peter speaking to Cornelius, who is a God-fearer and has a tremendous spiritual pedigree here, but he's not a believer. He's not regenerate. He is a believer in God, gives alms, and he's a God-fearer. But in the sermon in Acts 10, verse 42, um, he says, well, for start in verse 40, God raised him up on the third day. So he's given this testimony about who Jesus is. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, and he gives these points about Jesus. Verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Okay, oh, good news. Verse 42, and he ordered us to preach to the people, and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Whoa! Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Verse 42, bad news. Verse 43, good news. That's how that works. So even in the case we have this really positive you know, guy moving right along, Cornelius, you've got uh, you've got a, a very straightforward characterization. Nothing about the love of God there. Just he's going to judge, all right. And if you trust him, you receive forgiveness for the sins that he would have judged you for. That's the message. We see the same thing in Acts chapter seventeen, uh, as Paul speaking in the Areopagus, and. Um, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, of course, the resurrection they could countenance, uh, so they just 
scoffed and moved on after that. But notice how Paul is very straightforward, even in a fairly sensitive talk here, clever as he's maneuvering, quoting Epicurean philosophers and everything there on Mars Hill. He still makes clear that judgment is coming. And the one who's doing the judgment is the one that God raised from the dead. So this goes right back to this earlier discussion that uh, that Trent is having with his friends. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the bad news is not given the short shrift in the book of Acts. I'll tell you what gets the short shrift in the book of Acts, the love of God. It is not mentioned a single time. In the 13 times the gospel is preached in the book of Acts, the love of God is not mentioned a single time. Now, the love of God is manifest there, there's no question. But notice, that these are the people that were trained by Jesus to take the gospel to everybody. And and they they don't mention the love of God? No, the, their style and their approach was different. So, uh, you know, I mean, you could do with that what you want, but the word love doesn't appear in the entire book of Acts. It's just not there. It's not the way they communicated the gospel. It does seem that that was the motivation that they used to get their attention, and this is why the Holy Spirit was coming to convict of sins. And thank you for that clarification about us loving God, because that's why we need to pray, because this is a spiritual problem, and uh, we need to we need to pray that the Spirit will move in their hearts and change them so that they do love God, mm-hmm. because that is, it's their spiritual fallenness and brokenness that is the problem right now, right. which is the problem with everybody, That's really. Because right. <laughs> if we didn't have that, we would see God as He is. So, all right. Here's a question from Tom in Michigan. Hi, it seems I spend 50% of my time trying to convince pastors and churches that apologetics is biblical and needed in the church, especially in Reformed circles. What are some good arguments or those that think for those who think apologetics, apologetics isn't necessary and a waste of time, especially from a Reformed view? All right, so I would, I would ask your Reformed friends, uh, do, you, do you think that Jesus was Reformed? in his theology. Did he understand sovereign grace the way you do? No, I think he was. In John chapter 6, John chapter 10, etc. Okay, do you think the apostles were Reformed? Yes, they agreed with Jesus. This is a biblical view. Okay, so I'm just, all I'm doing is, I'm not arguing for Reformed theology. I'm just, I'm trying to deal with the individuals that he identified these are Reformed. So, So then, if these all these people agreed with you, or you agree with them, you have the same theology, did they use apologetics in light of their conviction about sovereign grace? The answer is yes, <laughs> all the time. Look at John chapter 5. I'm going to turn there right now because um, I have this kind of listed handily. <clears throat> John chapter 5. Uh, I think it's John chapter 5. Yeah, John chapter 5. Um, it says, Jesus says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, so he's testifying about himself. But he says, I need to have corroboration. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony of Jesus about me is true. 
you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Now, what is that? He's saying, I have evidential support from another person that testifies to me, John. Um, And then he says, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify to me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Verse 30, you search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these testify of me but you are unwilling to come to me. Verse 45, but if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Okay, so there's John, there's the supernatural works, there's the Father, there's the Scriptures, there's Moses, there's one, two, three, four, five different lines of support that Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, who believes on your view in sovereign grace, used as a support and evidence for his claims. So if Jesus is using apologetics, and this is one place, then why can't we? Why aren't we using apologetics? John chapter 20, John himself gives the reason why he wrote the entire gospel from which I just read. Many other signs and wonders, that would be miracles, Jesus performed that I have not included here. He only included seven in the Gospel of John, pretty good ones. But these I have included so that you would believe. So according to John, the reason that he gave the Gospel of John is to give evidence that resulted in belief. And the belief resulted what was the nature of the belief? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, okay, so that he's the the way of salvation, and God come down, and in believing, have life in his name. Okay, that's John. The whole Gospel of John, he says he wrote to be an apologetic for Jesus, in which he also records Jesus doing apologetics. Now, that's just the start. I cited Acts 17 earlier, Areopagus. Um, which he bore testimony to by raising him from the dead. Acts chapter 2, Peter's doing his sermon, and Jesus rose from the dead, and we are witnesses. I mentioned John chapter, or rather Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, and he appeared to us. We are witnesses of this. So what do you have throughout? out from top to bottom, not just the Gospels and the Book of Acts, but you also have many examples of this in the Hebrew Scriptures, evidence being given that provides knowledge about God and Jesus in which we put our trust, resulting in salvation, which salvation is a sovereign work of God on the Reformed view. There is no contradiction. So, my appeal to anyone, especially Reformed types, is that the Scripture teaches and uses 
apologetics. And if someone thinks that their theology agrees with Jesus and the apostles, and Jesus and the apostles did this, then their theology ought to make room for it. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, I think that's a good argument. Um, of course, as I just finished saying in the last question, I do think the Holy Spirit has to work in a person's heart. That goes without saying. Right. But God doesn't zap people out of nowhere. He actually works through means. And that means is somebody not just hearing the gospel, but understanding the gospel and believing it's true. All those things have to be present. I mean, just look at the the parable of the the, the seeds and the soils, right? right? right. The, the seeds are taken away because they don't understand. That's what the text That's says. That's in the Matthew version of that. It has that indication, right? Matthew so, 17 or whatever, yeah. So if I tell somebody the gospel, the, the, the bare facts of the gospel, and they don't hear in what I'm saying that I'm actually making a claim about reality, because most people see religion as whatever makes me feel good, mm-hmm. whatever's true for you, whatever you like is is true, in quotes, right. because they think all religions are not really part of reality. Right. So if I just tell them the gospel, they could say, that's a really nice story. What I have to communicate to them is that I'm actually, the gospel is not just a story. It is actually something true about reality. Right. And that's what apologetics does. It communicates that truth about the gospel, a necessary truth. In order for them to be saved, they need to believe that it actually, that Jesus actually did die on a cross for their sins and rise again. So that's what apologetics is doing. It's the reason why God saves people through the gospel is because he is doing all of this for his glory and to reveal himself to us. So that's why he saves through what he has done in this world and through knowledge of that. Because that's the whole purpose of saving people. It's so that we will enjoy him and glorify him forever. Mm -hmm. So that's why he does it through the gospel. So as a Reformed person, that's how I look at it. I look at apologetics as presenting part, an aspect of the gospel that's necessary for understanding the gospel. And that is the fact that it is true. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything else to add to that, Greg, before we close oh, this? Just, I'm frustrated because Reformed folk, and they're not the only ones, but of all people, they ought to be understand that the means are part of the process to accomplish the ends that God has ordained. And it doesn't take away anything from sovereign grace. If it did, then Jesus, who believed in sovereign grace, wouldn't have been doing that. And the John, who... Peter, who believed in sovereign grace, on their view, wouldn't have done that. And Paul, who believed and taught sovereign grace, wouldn't have used apologetics. But there is no conflict there. So I, I it just mystifies me why this is missed. I think some, some people are concerned about the idea of communicating the, to the non-believer that they are in judgment over God. I've, I've heard people say that that's what they're concerned about. But again, it, you can present the truth. And the thing about truth is that God will either use it for the Holy Spirit to work in their life and change their hearts, or he will use it for their judgment. Because Mm -hmm. the more that is placed before them, that will judge them in the end, because they're rejecting this truth that was given Mm -hmm. to them. So you don't have to present it in the, in a sense of, 
hey, I'm going to let you judge God now. <laughs> you're, you're just actually showing them reasons that, it, that it's true. I understand the sympathy. I, I have sympathy for the concern that presuppositionalists have, and those are all Reformed folk, um, that it seems like instead of the, belie- the non-believer being in the dock with God judging over him, that now God is in the dock and the non-believer is judging over them. But I think that's a mischaracterization. The fact is, every person has to make an assessment. You can call it a judgment over God if you want, but that's a pejorative way of putting it. They have to make an assessment. And this characterization, it seems to me, and they take things like, it's the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, etc., etc., and um and the but if it turns out that the behaviors we're recommending and defending the gospel were the very behaviors that we see Jesus and the apostles performing which they are then they were not guilty of putting people in an inappropriate role of being the judge over god okay they are they are in the appropriate role epistemologically of making an assessment that is a kind of judgment, but now they're equivocating on the word judgment, you know. It's an assessment that's being made, and it's an assessment that even here in John chapter 5, Jesus calls for, you know, and he makes all this reference to these different witnesses. If you don't believe me, believe John. If you don't believe John, believe the Scriptures. If you don't believe the Scriptures in general, believe Moses or believe the works that I do. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, judge me by these things. That's what he's saying. But he means judge and assess, not condemn. And that's why I think the equivocation, I actually never thought of this particular point before in this discussion on this point with presuppositional apologists, but that's what it amounts to. This is an assessment. Assessments are judgments. Also, there's other kinds of judgments that people make against God. That's what was going on here. And this is an assessment that even Jesus is enjoining the Pharisees, for goodness sake, to make the subjects of his conversation right here. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Trent and Tom. We appreciate hearing from you. If you have a question, send it on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or go through our website on our hashtag STRask podcast page. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 